Software is broken, but it can be fixed. Test Double's superpower is improving how the world builds software by building both great software and great teams. And you can help. Test Double is looking for empathetic senior software engineers and DevOps engineers. We work in JavaScript, Ruby, Elixir, and a lot more. Test Double trusts developers with autonomy and flexibility at a 100% remote, employee-owned software consulting agency. Are you trying to grow? Looking for more challenges? Enjoy lots of variety in projects, working with the best teams in tech as a developer consultant at Test Double. Find out more and check out remote openings at link.testdouble.com slash join. That's link.testdouble.com slash join. Greater than code. My name is May Beal, and I'm here with my friend Mandy Moore, who will introduce our guest. Hi, I'm Mandy, and I'm here with Udo Kemper. He is a human geographer with a background in archives and digital storytelling and a lifelong technology tinkerer. For the past decade, he has worked in solidarity with indigenous and Afro descendant communities in the Amazon to map their ancestral lands and document their traditional knowledge and oral histories. He is passionate about co-creating and applying technology to support marginalized communities in defending their right to self-determination and representation and being in control of telling their own stories. Rudo currently works with Digital Democracy, where he is accompanying local communities across the globe in defending their lands and stewarding the development of the Earth Defenders Toolkit, a new collaborative space for Earth Defender communities and their allies. He also serves on the executive boards of Native Land Digital and the International Society for Participatory Mapping and is one of the core stewards of the open source geostorytelling application Terra Stories. Rudo is originally from Carousel, but currently based in Springfield, Virginia. And I know personally, May and I have both gotten to work with Rudo at Ruby for Good. I was mm-hmm. in DC. I'm not sure where you were, May. But before we delve into that, we do need to ask our standard question from Greater Than Code, which is, what is your superpower, Rudo, and how did you acquire it? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love it. Uh, Thanks, Mandy. It's so great to be on the podcast um, and to be having this conversation with you all. This is really exciting. My superpower and how did I acquire it? I think the way that I usually answer is, is that I don't have any one superpower. Like, I'm not great at anything, but I'm, like, pretty good at lots of things. And I've acquired that from just having different roles and just done different things across my life and my career where I'm able to kind of mess with a little bit of code, but I'm not a developer. You know, um, I've made maps before, but I'm not an expert cartographer in that way either. I speak some languages based off of places that I've lived, but not fluently. (laughs) You get the idea. So I think that's kind of my superpower is just like being pretty decent at a lot of stuff, but not like amazing at any one thing. I don't know if that's a kind of a typical answer or not, but (laughs) it's what comes to mind. That's a great answer. I like it. I like it. Being good at a lot of things is a good skill to have. 
being decent at a lot of things. Let's not get too out of hand here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's awesome, Rudo, because it's not just that you have acquired some skills. I'll try to go in line with what you're you're putting down here on the good, although I have some personal experience to disagree, but I'll, I'll follow you. But it seems like you are always learning new skills and picking up new things that you are able to be adept at very quickly. So I don't know if you have any further thoughts about how did you learn how to learn so well and so quickly? Wow. I think by necessity, (laughs) like you're just put into a position where you kind of find yourself having to learn something completely on the fly. And for example, I recently joined Digital Democracy in November. And uh, one of the projects that um, that I started to work with is this Earth Defenders Toolkit, where I pretty much discovered uh, right away that I had to play the role of a product manager. Now, I've worked with product managers before, including yourself, May, um, on some Ruby for Good projects. But I've never had to do it before or really had a good sense of what that entails. And somebody told me like two months into this project and trying to figure out how to basically coordinate a lot of moving pieces, right? And kind of keeping track of a roadmap, et cetera, et cetera. Like, Rudo, you're basically a product manager right now. You should know that. And I'm like, okay, let me look up on Google what product manager means and what that all entails. And that was helpful because I'm like, okay, got it. This is kind of what I've been sort of you know, doing on the fly without much knowledge or thought put into it. And then you learn because you have no choice. <laughs> so I feel like it's been a lot of that. Also, when I was younger, um, I applied, I would apply for jobs where I'm like, not exactly sure how to do the thing yet. But you know, two weeks into before the job, you kind of figure out what that is. And then you show up on the first day, like, all right, I know how to like mess with a little bit of, you know, HTML, CSS now, because <laughs> I just spent a few nights, you know, brushing up on that. And then just also like, you know, in my more professional work in South America, you know, you find yourselves in positions very often where you figure out how to figure how to do things very quickly, you know, working in kind of with indigenous peoples and certain contexts where there's a lot of specific local knowledge that is important for you to know. And you just kind of pick that up, you know, as you go. So I feel like it's been a lot of, yeah, kind of sort of ad hoc learning, you know, and then after you do a lot of that, you become more mentally, I think, trained to to do that more often. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Love it. Yeah. I can totally relate to that because that's why I'm here. 12 years ago, my daughter's turning 12 next week. And hey, congrats. And I I know exactly how long I've been in tech because it's from almost the exact day she's been born. So I was never interested in getting into tech and or I never it was never a thing that I had planned on doing. But I can really identify that just out of necessity, getting in there and finding myself in a place where I I was found myself in a job, I was waitressing. And as a single parent and doing it alone, you can imagine bartending isn't a very lucrative career or like easy to have career for someone who has to work till two or three o'clock in the morning. So I was like, where can I find any job that I can work online that's not a or multi-level or sales because I'm just not a salesperson. Like no offense to anyone who is. I think salespeople are great. I just am like really laid back in the fact that like, you really don't have to buy this thing unless you want to. (laughs) So I make a really crappy salesperson. (laughs) But yeah, learning how to do things on necessity and 12 years later, here I am. Actually, I started out just being the person who produced these shows. And now here I am second time being a panelist because I've 
grown into that self-confidence in that I feel like, you know, maybe I don't code, but I still have technology skills that I've come into and picked up along my 12-year career that I can also contribute to greater than code conversations. So I love it. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, sounds totally relatable um, in that regard. Where you just kind of like you figure out how to do the little things and then eventually those become bigger things. And before you know it, you're like running the ship. (laughs) Yeah. And a lot of it's reputation too, which I'm guessing that is kind of where you are. Like if you're just one of those kind of people that like jumps in and puts yourself in these situations that can be really, really scary sometimes. And then like all of a sudden people are asking you for more things and they're like, oh, can you do this? And I'm like, thinking to myself, no, but I'm going to learn. So I mean, like, I would always like when somebody always asked me to, you know, can you do this thing? Can I hire you to do this thing? And I'm like, I have no idea how to do this thing. I would learn to do this thing. And just kind of like they say, you know, fake it till you make it. I guess that's what I did Mm -hmm. for 12 years. So that's how I'm here. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about my story. We are here to talk about Ruby for Good and especially Terra Stories and digital democracy and all the stuff that you do that's like improving our world as a whole. I just want to quickly say that our friend Jacob Stobel has joined us. So he is now here too. So I'm- Hi, Jacob. Hey. All right. I'm excited to get into the meat of this conversation. And yeah, where should we start? Well, if it's okay, I would love to add one thing to what we were just talking about, where, you know, I thought going into coding that it was something that is masterable. (laughs) I didn't realize that actually the whole entire time you're just reteaching yourself or you're just teaching yourself things that you you've never seen before. So I tell people that I get paid to solve puzzles I've never seen before. And that's a pretty good life. And it's very similar to what both of you are describing and what I know of both of you. And I still feel it sometimes, but there's this like orientation that the coders or the code is like the most important part, which it just isn't. Like being in community and figuring out how to connect people and make things happen. That's what all of y'all do <laughs> brilliantly. And so, Anyway, yeah, I just want to say from the perspective of being a coder, it's like that's one part of what makes things happen. And so many coders I know have so many projects that just never see the light of day because they don't have all of these other kinds of pieces to pull it together or connections or the ability to make them. So I just want to effusively credit both of you with being amazing and helping all of us be here right now. So way to go. And thank you. I love that. I actually just want to add to that, that sort of before I started working with coders and developers and sort of getting into the more kind of direct tech development space, I had this idea that that programmers are like totally people that mastered to know how to do this entire code base and can just like pull like different pieces of code from nothing, you know, in this very systematic kind of way. And that was my conception of a coder. And then I started working with developers, yeah, initially through Ruby for Good and now with Digital Democracy. And I realized it's exactly as you say, May, it's like kind of problem solving. Like, okay, well, let's let's look at that. Let's examine what this does and mess with it and sort of figure out how to, you know, get it to behave the way that we want to. 
which is actually how I do things too. And it made me feel like, oh, wow, actually, maybe I could one day become a coder because they think and kind of work exactly as I do, just at a higher capacity, of course, and with more like more of a toolkit, if you will. Uh, but the methodology is pretty much the same, which is really cool. It really is. It's sort of the attitude of I, given enough time, I theoretically could learn anything. But that doesn't mean I want to, you know, because there's only so many seconds I have in my life. But theoretically, if it feels worth it, I can do it. You know, I think that's true for anyone, ideally. And I used to play pool full time. And someone asked this famous pool player who I was standing next to and who I know, and they said, well, do you think that May can be a pro pool player? And he said the same thing you just said, Jacob, like, well, yeah, if she puts enough time in, of course she can. So there's this thing about mastery is more about time commitment. And I tell my niece all the time, she rolls her eyes, but I ask her, how do you succeed or get good at something? And she's like, you do it a lot. And I'm like, what else? She goes, you fail. (laughs) Like I've got her trained on this is how you just have to put in the time. And Rudo, it's now been, I think, seven years since we first met that you have been stewarding this Terra Stories program. And your commitment and devotion to this project and just effusiveness in general help it continue to thrive. And I, I'm just so excited that you're here. I don't know if it would make sense for you to maybe share with our listeners something about either how you came into digital democracy through the Terror Stories angle, or if you wanted to go from digital democracy back out, whichever way might be just some framing of we we said a lot of words so far. And I don't know that everybody knows what I don't definitely know that I know what they all mean. Sure. Yeah, gosh, has it been seven years already? Man, time flies. (laughs) It's yeah, it's been quite a journey, no doubt. Yeah, I think the way I would frame that is more like by entry point of like how I got started working with code and doing Terra stories and how that all kind of emerged. So, you know, as a little bit of background, I've always had a little bit of a background in like web development. So, you know, I used to build basic websites in like the early 2000s, you know, and I know a little bit of HTML and CSS. And so I've always had kind of that in my back pocket, um, later working with like WordPress and stuff like that. You know, I joined an organization in 2014 called the Amazon Conservation Team, where Basically, my role was doing participatory mapping with indigenous people. So I'm by training, I have a background in geography. And so that's what a lot of my work has been in the past seven or eight years is working with communities to help them map their lands and to do that in a participatory way. That means like we're not doing it. We're helping communities use the tools, build capacity to do it themselves. Right. So I was working with a community in Suriname, which is in South America, Dutch speaking country with an Afro descendant group called the Matawai. And we were doing this kind of participatory mapping project. Uh, where they were, it's really amazing, actually. It's this community that ancestors of formerly escaped slaves from that were brought over in the sort of 1700s and were able to escape into the rainforest. They fought against the kind of the colonial power at the time, which was the Dutch, and they successfully fought for their freedom to exist there, and they continue to live there today. It's this really kind of amazing community. Um, they have a lot of pride in their history, of course, as well. And there's a lot of storytelling about the first times that their ancestors arrived in a completely new world, new forest, you know, new things to eat, <laughs> new medicines, you know, completely different space and had to kind of adapt to living there and have a lot of really fascinating uh, stories about their ancestors and what they first did and where they first settled. 
and what are the sacred spaces and almost mythological stories about their history that are really kind of informative for who they are as a people. So they, you know, it's part of their self-identity is this amazing history. So we were doing this mapping work with this community, uh, basically helping them kind of use technology like GPS and smartphone applications to map their lands. And out of that came this desire to want to do more. Because when you're mapping, you know, it's place names, but it's that's only a part of the puzzle. It's only part of the story is, you know, there's so much richness and information and knowledge about places that people are carry basically carrying with them in their heads. So the community, basically the mapping spurred this like broad community level reflection of wanting to do more to capture that oral history that's contained by the elders. And so that spurred a desire to want to kind of capture some of that. So, okay, long story short, you know, we start working with this community to record oral histories. And we were trying to think of kind of creative ways that we could use technology to maybe produce something that would appeal to the young people, especially, you know, like younger people out anywhere, you know, the kids in the Matawai had cell phones and they're not really so interested in sitting around listening to stories of their elders. And so we wanted to kind of create this new technology or some, some kind of a way to make it kind of exciting for them to learn about their oral histories. And so with my kind of like previous like hacky web developer kind of background, I'm like, well, we could probably maybe spin up like a, like a, I don't know, like an offline WordPress or something with some interactive maps, you know, we'll get it working on local host, you know, it'll be fine. We'll figure it it'll out. It'll take like two months. <laughs> we'll, we'll have it rolling. Yeah. No big deal. You know, I knew about WAMP stacks and stuff where you can locally have servers. I'm like, yeah, we'll figure it out. Okay, no worries. And so, yeah, we tried to do that, and it was not quite so easy. Um, interactive maps, as it turns out, are very hard to get running offline. They're very dependent on APIs and all kinds of stuff that's available on the internet, and that's where the, that industry is going, especially. So that was the first thing, you know. Uh, the second thing is you need to get it working on smartphones and, you know, all that. Basically, have it running in the jungle turned out to be a little more complicated than anticipated. <laughs> So we had a lot of setbacks where we tried to kind of do that ourselves. And we tried to hire some consultants that were like kind of interested, but then gradually ducked out after they themselves realized like, mm, this is tricky. I don't know if I can do this. And then one thing led to another, you know, after a long year of just trying to kind of put this application together, we ended up encountering a network called Ruby for Good, which is what May is a part of as well. And I think, you know, uh, has been featured on this podcast before. And basically, it's this amazing collective of volunteer developers that like to build software for good. And that can be as something like a diaper service, you know, to get sort of diapers that are no longer being used by a family into the hands of another family. So building software to engender and enable those kinds of services. Or it can be building really amazing storytelling applications for communities in the middle of the Amazon rainforest. And we told the community about that. We kind of pitched the idea. It's like, wouldn't it be amazing to build this application? And the community really loved it and was inspired by it. And like out of nothing, you know, at the first Ruby for Good, which I think it was 2018, May, if I'm not mistaken. If I'm yeah, you might, be right. Right. you might be right. I thought it was earlier, but. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> I mean, the idea was around longer, you know? Um, yeah, in 2018, there was like a DC-based event where a team got together and was like, all right, how do we make this happen? And I, I was fortunate enough to be there as well. And in the span of a weekend, an application materialized out of nothing, which is like amazing to see. I mean, of course, it was buggy, it was scrappy, you know, it didn't do everything we needed it to. Uh, that took years before we got to the point where we even talked about like an MVP or, you know, anything like that. But that was just so powerful and incredible to see, you know, what you can do with a group of people that are motivated and that want to help out. And that was really, I think, my first foray into code. And that was mainly 
make kind of watching people do things and being like, okay, that makes sense. You know, like this, this little module is what does this. And, um, eventually I got to be good enough that I could make little changes, like, you know, changing the color of something and um, hiding something and then making it appear again. And eventually like smaller, but still, yeah, more in-depth kind of uh, changes to the application. Love it. So cool, Rudo. And Ruby for good. What's cool is it's not only developers, but there are designers and product managers and other community people. And generally, we try to have someone from the organization that we're serving come to the event. And Rudo was one of the first people that that actually worked out with. So there was an event and there might have been one other group that had a representative. So it was like, whoa, hey, hi. It was really fun to have Ruta there. And another connection is one of the organizers um, was Brazilian and so really was motivated to help with Amazonian preservation and also had a connection to Mapbox. And Mapbox was a huge supporter early on for Terra Stories to get off the ground too. So there's just so many different connections that have come along to contribute and just want to, it's just such a, an honor in the world to have opportunities to contribute. So thank you, Rudo, for continuing to make that be available to people to help with. And what I'm curious about is, you know, in that, just to like rewind the timeline just slightly to when and how did the Amazon conservation team get connected and asked to make these maps? And then it became, because one of the like things that moves me most about this project is that it was indigenous requested, indigenous led partnerships and and so many times you know especially from the states there's a lot of white savior stuff and like we're gonna bring our modern technology to help you do dot 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 and so just the fact that this exists at all and the way it came to exist is just so beautiful and i was hoping maybe if you share a little bit more of that people might be interested to hear yeah, absolutely. Um, so the way that ACT operates and many other organizations that are kind of very grassroots and oriented towards working closely with communities take on a similar approach, uh, which is, first of all, to only take action when invited, right? So instead of coming to a community with an idea in advance and being like, hey, wouldn't it be cool if it's a request that comes from the community? And so in the case of this example of the Matawai from Suriname, they had learned about similar mapping work done elsewhere and wanted to do their, their own map and inquired in their network, like, who can we speak to that can help us make a map like this? And that's what led them to be connected with ACT. So it's it's that initial sort of contact from the community that's really kind of key to that. And then there's different modalities of that too, as it plays out, right? So um, another kind of concept that's really important that doesn't get practiced enough, to be honest, is very simple, but it's always to first listen before taking any action. You know, <laughs> such a simple concept, but it's so often not practiced, especially when it comes to like NGO kind of worlds where there's like funders and they have their own deliverables and timelines and things like this. And they want to see something. No, listen to the community first and see what they want and take the time to do that as well. Uh, with indigenous peoples, that is especially relevant because decision making and, you know, consensus building is not the same based on community to community. It, it differs. And so taking the time to go by the local processes and hanging out a while and not, you know, showing up for only for 48 hours and then leaving, expecting to have a fully fleshed idea of what that community needs. It takes time. 
and it can evolve as well. So having that kind of open-endedness is really important when it comes to working with communities and the flexibility for projects to adapt and evolve and to never come with solutions that are pre-made, never. That's so pivotal. And then the final thing, the final piece of that, to take it like one extra level, and this is something a digital democracy we take very seriously, is co-creation. So when solutions are proposed, and specifically tools, even digital tools, you know, and those start to be worked on, to find ways of co-creating that as much as possible with communities. So I would even say, like, for example, with Ruby for Good, you know, I was able to show up, and that's fine. But ideally, somebody from the community would have been able to show up as well to have that kind of co-creation relationship be even more direct and more complete um, rather than via proxy. I mean, of course, that was the best we could do. But ideally, you know, um, we want community members to be as involved in the co-creation of technology as possible. And so that can be tricky. That can be hard. It takes time. Donors don't understand that. It's very hard in our space to find donors that are that really realize what that takes and what that entails. But that's what we believe is the right way forward. And so with like Mapeo, which is one of the tools that we're building a digital democracy, with Terror Stories as well, there's always this process of constantly verifying and validating if what we're building is actually matching the needs and if not, what needs to be adapted. And that goes from the code and how it's built and just different principles that communities find to be very important, like data sovereignty, to the user interface. You know, one example, people in the Amazon sometimes have eyesight issues um, and don't have glasses. And so looking at a phone and a small you know, application can sometimes not be very helpful. So it, it's across the board from the back end to the way that the front end of applications is built. And of course, that's technology, but really this goes to any project design, you know, to have that co-creation being really core of it. And then is, are there like ongoing needs that have to be fulfilled? Uh, support if something goes wrong or maintaining infrastructure. Yeah. Like, I, I don't I don't know what any of that might be. Yeah, this is a huge part of it. And yeah, it's something that so a digital democracy, for example, there's a technology team which is, you know, software engineers, developers, UX designers, product managers, all of that. And then we have a programs team, which is more folks. And that's what, what I'm serving at Digital Democracy, where our role is kind of that accompaniment and ensuring that, yeah, the communities that are using the tools have the resources that they need, whether that's training guides or modules or something breaks in the field and they need support, right? And that happens a lot. And it's one, it is one of the kind of, I don't want to say tensions, but difficulties in doing this work is that we are developing open source technology and things can sometimes break and communities have expectations. And, you know, sometimes when something breaks in the field, if it's not clear why it broke, the person might feel like it's their fault somehow that they somehow broke it. And that can be very, yeah, tricky to work with, especially in the case of like the pandemic where nobody's able to travel. And so there's like a level of remote support that has to happen. And we're very sensitive to that, you know, ensuring that while co-creating and kind of involving communities in the early stages of software is very powerful. It can also lead to disappointment if it's not done in the right way and that people aren't clear about, okay, well, this is an early phase of this particular software, you know, and that people don't feel like guinea pigs as well, that, you know, they're just being used to develop a software that's not working. And there's a lot of uh, uh, frustration that can result from that. Absolutely. Yeah, we experienced that we being me and anyone else with whom I've done any kind of software venture that is for good, whether or not through Ruby for good, and to have the cultural barriers and historical exploitation to try to figure out how to mitigate that is super complicated. So yeah, awesome that that is the like priority of digital democracy. Something I noticed from Digital Democracy's website is the use of the term Earth Defender. 
And like you're talking about co-creating and and listening to um, the people themselves. I'm curious if you might be willing to share with us some more about what defines an Earth Defender. Do people call themselves Earth Defenders? Who gets named an Earth Defender? Who gets to wear the Earth Defender sash or superhero costume? And how how does that work? And if it's relevant, how did digital democracy come to have that as a priority and like a phrase that's got as much primacy as it does on its website? Yeah, I love it. It's such a good question. Um so whenever we have any kind of session or workshop about Earth Defenders Toolkit or kind of like any discussion, any chance that we have to talk to people, we always start with that question, actually, of like, what does Earth Defender mean to you, right? Like, if you were to interpret this term, like, what what is your takeaway? Like, what resonates? Like, what comes to mind when thinking about this? And so uh, we almost intentionally don't define it because we want people to be able to have their own kind of version or definition of it or their own interpretation, because it can mean so much, right? And definitely, we're thinking of some things, you know, like when we started to uh, use the term, of course, we've done a lot of work with indigenous peoples in the Amazon, uh, more recently in Africa and Southeast Asia as well. But there's also other communities like local communities that are not indigenous, that are also on the front lines of fighting for their rights, their land or or protecting biodiversity, fighting extractivism taking place that's nearby and and these kinds of like big global forces that are threatening the livelihoods of both lands and communities on a local basis. So we wanted to have something a little bit more broad to be able to essentially, you know, apply to many different communities that are kind of in that same position. But then at the same time, like kind of, I think gesturing to your question, May, like anybody can sort of be an earth defender if you're taking an action to defend the earth, right? And so that can be any of us as well. That can be somebody who wants to get involved to do something to contribute to that broad pursuit, you know, and that can be many things that can be climate action, that can be uh, working on the front lines with communities, combating extractivism, like I said, it can be political activism, it can be many different things. So this notion of Earth Defender, we've like, I know we haven't defined it, you, you you might have even looked on the website, like, let's see how they define it. And we've kind of almost intentionally kept it that way. Because we want it to be like an open definition where people can decide for themselves what that means. And then also the platform that we're building, Earth Defenders Toolkit, also has like an intentionally open-ended kind of structure where the, the resources that we're providing focus on some things that we hear a lot about from communities in terms of pain points and obstacles and resources that they wish existed. But there's a lot of room to kind of, again, co-create it with anybody that wants to use it and kind of own it and make this be a hub or a platform or a community, right? So that sort of like lack of parameterization is almost um, intentional there. That, this is sort of making me think, and well, if I have any incorrect assumptions about what I'm about to say, please check them. But I'm, th- I'm thinking about like, you know, a community that is sort of has been doing something along the lines of what you're talking about, and they've been doing it well for a long time. And they, you know, have a lot of sort of like genuine connections in their own community but they've never made software before. And I'm sort of like thinking about collaborating with a community and wanting them to be the leaders, but at the same time, sort of helping them understand sort of what are good ways to go about, what are best practices to go about making quality software, which might not, I mean, I I, I come from the nonprofit world in a previous life. And I, I think like those sort of, work cultures are very different and I think for a good reason but I think like I'm wondering like how helping a community like pick up those best practices while also sort of 
letting them be in charge I'm, seems like a interesting challenge yeah. to me. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's so interesting. And it, it, yeah, I think of one community that, so I haven't worked with them, but you know, a colleague of mine has in Guyana where um, there was an application that was being built. And instead of, I think sometimes when like software is being developed, there's almost this intention to keep the community or whoever it's serving out of the kitchen, if you will, out of like the development process of like what that looks yeah. like. And in this case, in this community in Guyana, he tried to do the opposite and actually kind of explain how the tech is built and sort of why the pieces are what they are and how they're, what they're doing. And this was an indigenous community that I think sometimes the assumption might be like better not to involve them or have them, in, you know, considering those kinds of te technical details, even in like a parochial, in a um, kind of a way where you assume like indigenous people wouldn't understand that somehow. But in fact, they really gravitated towards that and actually appreciated the application all the more understanding how it's built and we actually got a lot of enthusiasm out of learning the technology and i feel like it speaks to a broader like interest in tech literacy and just like how that as a whole like when you work with a community on their tech literacy it enables them to achieve things far beyond just the creation of one application it has much more broader kind of impact in terms of interacting with all technology right and so it has a benefit beyond just the application development cycle itself but also i think you know we don't give people enough uh, credits and we that in terms of like how much they actually are able to get involved in that process and make sense of the different pieces of the application so there can be a huge benefit actually to having that i hope i articulated that well i thought it was a really interesting question no definitely and i i didn't have any particular answer in mind but i i just think it's an interesting mm. problem because that you know i i i think about you know my family or my friends who are uh, not in the tech industry and they just want technology to work. Like they just want, they, they know what they want. They just want it to work. And the best practices of like sort of iteration, which are really important. Like I'm, I'm the stakeholder of this. This is the software that matters to me. And ask, then saying like, Hey, go, go use the software that sort of works and doesn't do everything you told us you'd want it to do. And tell us what you think. <laughs> um, I just feel like is, it would be like, a, just a, such a new concept to people who haven't, Mm -hmm. Yeah, way that one of my colleagues once described this is like the way that browsers used to kind of tell you what was going on behind the scenes. And then even if you don't know about technology, you can kind of figure it out. You like you associate certain like lines of text that are obscure to you with something happening in the application, even if you can't make sense of what exactly that is, right? Or like the the sound of a modem, you know, like the old dial-up modems, and you could figure out by the kind of sounds like when it's actually connecting versus when it's like, you know, <laughs> not doing its job. And to have to give that like slight exposure yeah. to what's going on in the tech can be really kind of helpful and powerful for people that, you know, other usually are shielded from that kind of more backend stuff. And then also might not have a sense of why something isn't working. Yeah, any project that I've been involved in, the helping people understand not only how does technology work, but how to establish like processes that have resilience and are able to be replicable and like all of these more structural organizational things. How can we help improve that? Because it translates way beyond the specific project. And that's another, um, Ooh, I, I don't know if I even love referencing this. I, I'm trying to think if I know of a different one, but that, you know, teach someone how to fish, and then they can be able to self-sustain, whereas going and bringing some fish is 
like a one-time mm-hmm. situation. So, yeah, I love that angle. Um, and thanks for bringing that out, Jacob. That's awesome. It's cool, too, because it connects right into what I was going to ask next. And I'm channeling Casey Watts a little bit in how, if any listener wanted to be involved, and that person could be a coder, they could not be a coder, how can people become involved and or support this work? Any part of the Earth Defender Toolkit? Rudo, you probably have a great idea of of all the different ways in which any human could be of service or connection or whatever. I don't know if you already have a, hopefully you have an elevator speech ready to go about this topic. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I, um, what occurs to me thinking about that question is that there are so many communities that need help with many, many, many different things. And sometimes that can just be accessing resources or just helping communicate what's going on in their lands to an outside audience or help configuring phones or help translating materials or just being somebody who has exposure to how the quote like the Western world or like forces that are now emerging in their lands. Right. So communities never needed help with the management of their own lands. But now that these kind of like external forces are frequently impacting their livelihoods, somebody who can help navigate those changes that are taking place is a tremendous need that so many communities express. Like we, in the past couple of weeks, we've had a couple of forums, you know, virtual with communities in Africa, where just this morning, actually, we had an Africa forum where there were, I think, something over a hundred different community members from Africa present, where we were discussing basically like what the work and what sort of actions are looking like in different parts of Africa, from Senegal to Kenya, South Africa, Zambia, Congo, and sort of providing those opportunities for learning from one another. And there was just so much like request for like, how can we apply this toolkit? How can we take similar actions where we are? And so I think just anybody that wants to get involved, there's so many communities. And the question is in how to find those communities, right? Um, in my own experience, just showing up somewhere is actually like an effective way of like finding, you know, a way to be helpful because you might have skills that you don't even know about that, you know, that could be something you take for granted. Just to name a silly example, like file management, like knowing how to navigate like a directory of files with trees and subdirectories and things like that is something that a lot of people, you know, don't know or quite understand because they didn't grow up with it like, you know, many of us did. And so just little things that you might not think are valuable skills can actually be tremendous assets to a community that is trying to solve a problem even before you even get to something like technical stuff like coding or map making or whatever, right? Just being a resource is such a huge asset. So we are creating spaces for more communities to kind of post help requests um, to sort of like, you know, we're dealing with this. Is there anybody that can help us? And vice versa, if you are somebody that wants to get involved to sort of write about what you have to offer. So on the Earth Defenders Toolkit, there's a forum for that where let's say that you have 10 hours per week to dedicate to whatever it may be. And you're anybody that wants to get in touch, that this is what you have offered, what you have to offer and, you know, what your skills are. Beyond that, of course, there's, you know, like if you are a programmer, if you are a developer, uh, there's definitely open source software that one can contribute to. And there's processes to kind of like plug into that. Um, so in the Earth Defenders Toolkit, we do have a contribute page where there's lots of different ways to get involved. Financial, of course, is an elephant in the room. You know, there's tons of communities that need support financially to be able to take actions or to travel somewhere or, you know, to get resources that they need. 
So there's all of that. And we try to point to different places that responsibly um, where one can kind of contribute in that regard. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's what comes to mind. Yeah. Awesome. And what is the relationship between digital democracy and Earth Defenders Toolkit? Like, what is the larger mission of digital democracy? And how does this help fit in the picture? Yeah, so digital democracy is basically we're an NGO or kind of an odd NGO in the sense that we're like a tech company in a way, like with like, you know, a product manager and a roadmap and all that stuff and familiar processes, but we're like a nonprofit. So um, we also then have to kind of work with finding funding from a nonprofit space, which can be tricky for tech, because as I mentioned earlier, donors don't often understand exactly the work that we do. And then the other thing is the kind of the programmatic accompaniment for the tools that we're building. But so it's sort of, it's kind of interesting because like we take on this sort of value of like tech agnosticism, but then we're also building specific tools. And so our approach isn't then to sort of like, hey, we have this hammer, let's go find nails right? It's still kind of this in, very inspired by this philosophy of not wanting to promote any kind of one tool in advance when starting to work with the community. And so out of that idea is kind of where Earth Defenders Toolkit came from, which is sort of this new platform uh, where we're thinking very open-ended about actions and tools and what even is a tool? Is it need to be digital? Can it be something analog? Can it be something like a human connection, right? And those are things that we're learning when we ask about when we ask communities about the different tools that they need and resources that they need. Um, one thing that we're really trying to take seriously in terms of software, you know, we have, so there's Mapeo, there's Terror Stories, and frequently we get inquiries where a community might write to us and say, hey, I love this. How do I use this? How do I get started? And the only thing that we have to provide is sort of like a software guide, right? Of like, here's how you install it, or here's how you set it up and things like that. But the question they're asking is much bigger, right? They're asking, how do I get started? How do I find resources? How do I make a team? <laughs> how do I apply this thing that you've created? You know, and we usually don't have anything for that. That's where like the accompaniment comes in, where we can kind of sort of walk somebody through that process or perhaps share a case study of somebody else who has, but there's no real resources to target that. And that's really what communities are asking. And then when they find out that something like that doesn't exist, they say, mm, I don't know. Maybe not, I won't download this application or use it because it's too complicated. It, I don't have a sense of how to really apply it in practice, right? So that's sort of, yeah, what we're trying to do with Earth Defenders Toolkit is like providing guides on how to get started, how to even figure out what kind of action to take, you know, for a community in the Amazon, in the Ecuadorian Amazon that's facing like petroleum concessions being given out in their lands. Like, how do you even, what, how do you fight that? How do you take action? Like, what, that's such a, huge phenomenon that it can be hard to figure out how to even meaningfully fight back against that, right? So it may take time also to figure out what that looks like. And so we try to provide guides or case studies of, of how other communities have taken action as well, in some cases using software successfully. So for example, mapping software to create maps. Well, also, while generally always recognizing that it's much bigger than the tools, right? It's also kind of the human networks, you know, the solidarity that comes out of using a software and the processes around it can be just as meaningful, if not more, than the tool itself. So honoring that kind of broad ecosystem that exists around the usage of a tool um, is kind of what we're trying to create materials about and sort of how to engender that and how to meaningfully use tools as part of this broader kind of scaffolding. And like sort of proving out, you know, because there's, there's always like the story of seeing a piece of technology and like, oh, yeah, we'll use this and it's going to solve all of our problems. But like, there's like no buy-in in the in the team or the community or, or you know of the group, and you know, 
like how does you know how can like a community sort of like prove out like oh yeah this is it's going to solve this very specific problem and look how exciting this is yeah i think one of it is seeing it be created and having playing a part in that right like filing a request of like oh well you know this is almost exactly what we need but can it also do this one thing and then seeing that happen and knowing that that was your request that made that happen is I think a huge part of it. And I think RightMate is also goes to Ruby for good and like how, you know, stakeholders of projects become involved in it and really start Absolutely. to embrace it as they see they, they play a role actually in the creation of it. And so that generally is helpful, you know, in terms of ownership. Like if you've developed a project or designed a project rather than having somebody else design it and bring it to you, you feel more ownership over the process. You feel like it's yours. And a lot of the communities have expressed that, like Mapeo is ours, like we've had a role in building it, I think is a huge part of it. And then the other thing is seeing other communities use it and what they've been able to accomplish is also really important for especially local communities and indigenous peoples. To see how another indigenous community has taken action is like hugely inspiring for themselves because they feel, you know what, they, they are fighting the same things we are with the same constraints and they've been able to do this. We want to do that too. So I think knowing about those other uh, stories of communities can be really helpful too. I would love to hear more from May as well about how what your what your experience has been like working with one of these projects, which is Terra Stories. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. The first year that Terra Stories, which apparently was 2018, was at Ruby for Good. I was leading a different team and I was so jealous because I didn't know about this project and I wanted to be part of it from the very first moment. And then later on, I did have the pleasure of, of co-leading a team for a virtual Ruby for Good. And what I love most about the Terra Stories project, second to the part I was saying about it being in existence because of Indigenous request and interest, is that anyone can contribute. Like, you could just read the readme and, like, send a Slack message through Ruby for Good Slack, hey, we were wondering about this. Like, you don't have to be a developer, but people who are new developers, the team and all the different people that have ever been involved in coding the Terra Stories repo are super supportive of any brand new coder. Like, if you've never even committed to GitHub before or never done open source before, there's like a lot of community building and what inspires me is the energy of that of like let's all do whatever it is that we can in that moment and let's all gain more skills to work toward a world we want to be living in and want our future generations to live in and so it's this like really resonant thing going on between how it happens and what it is and where it leads us all together so yeah, that's pretty much my answer. I get inspired by community and yeah, building a future that that I dream of and meeting fellow dreamers like everybody on this call. So uh just want to encourage anybody who might have a like concrete interest in Terra stories and that like visual video storytelling app to consider trying to get involved. And we'll leave some links in the show notes about how to get a hold of Rudo, who is amazing and can direct anybody to anybody else. It's You'll find a way to become involved with if Rudo's there. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I think that's probably what I would share. 
I was involved in 2018 with Terror Stories, and I was just blown away from the second I heard about it. I was like, that's the team I want to be on. And it was more because, you know, I'm, I'm not, hey, I am technical. I need to stop having this imposter syndrome. Maybe. I am technical, but I'm not a coder. But I loved the whole concept behind Terror Stories, especially was because I'm a reader. I love to read. I love memoirs. I love history. The whole concept behind Terror Stories and just, you know, right now, there's oral traditions, oral traditions, everything is passed down. And as people are unfortunately dying or, you know, those stories are getting lost. So now the big draw for me was that this is how these stories are getting told and they'll be here for future generations and that that won't be the case anymore. And now that, you know, and, and also there's that, what's it called? Is it the game that they, they play the telephone game? And it's like, well, you said this, and then it gets turned into, well, they said this, and then it's, like, completely wrong. By the end of the time, it gets, like, the whole way down the, the telephone line. Like, the visual storytelling is just so compelling because you'll actually have this concrete stuff now, like, that you can actually go and look up. And because technology is advanced, I mean, I don't have that with my grandparents. You know, I only... Don't right. know what I've been told, and who knows if those things are even true. So I love that this exists, and I love that this is a is a way to preserve history as a whole. Right, uh, yeah, uh, totally, Mandy. I think that's what's so inspiring about it. I mean, of course, it came from an indigenous community and their specific needs, but really, this is something that's applicable to all of us, right? Because everybody has oral histories in their own family history that have been passed down from generation to generation and that we may lose at some point as well, you know, or like you're saying, the telephone game or changes or just perhaps details that are not quite so clear. And for, you know, for any community, really, whether it's a subculture, you know, people talk a lot about oral histories of like underground music, for example, and different venues in a city, you know, and terror stories can be used to map something like that. Or your own personal family history of migration, for example, and where people came from. You know, it can be something like I feel like as humans, we all live place bound lives. And so an application like this is really kind of applicable and useful to everybody. This is the part of the show where uh, we like to wrap up by everyone uh, reflecting on you know, something that they're going to take away from this conversation, maybe have a call to action. Well, first of all, I've I have wanted to do the Ruby for Good in D.C. I think every summer since 2018 and for every single summer, there, there was a reason why I couldn't do it. The pandemic, of course, being last year. But no, I and I can't do it this year. I don't even know what's happening. Um, anywho, uh, I think it's probably time to uh, get on the GitHub page and see how we can get involved. Because I have been in, I have been trying to find ways to sort of connect with uh, in new ways with new people because of the pandemic. And this seems like an interesting way to do it while, you know, maybe hopefully contributing something that I might be halfway good at. So I guess that's my that's my takeaway. Cool. So yeah, on that note, I will say that I was just informed yesterday via email that Ruby for Good is happening this year. It's going to be from September 23rd to 26th at the Shepherd Spring Retreats. That is in Sharpsburg, Maryland. So I'm planning on going. I know our fellow friend and panelist Casey Watts is going. May, are you coming? Oh, yeah. I don't miss Ruby for good. 
Rudo, will you be there this year? I have to check and see if I'm around. Okay. Date-wise. So, yeah. yeah I'd love it's to. It's actually longer. The last one I was at was only a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So I think they're actually adding a day to it this year. So it's going to be four days. And um, I will have to leave a day early because I unfortunately have another commitment that I have to come back for. But I'm planning on being there. And if you want to go, I suggest you go to beforegood.org and sign up. Tickets do tend to go fast. And there's an option to just get a ticket if you are paying by yourself or if you're perhaps a bigger company and feel like donating or sponsoring a cause like Terra Stories or the other causes that we talked about throughout this episode. There are options for you to be a sponsor and you should check them out. Thanks, Mandy. Yeah, same for Digital Democracy, Earth Defenders Toolkit. These projects, like Rudo said, depend on um, support from donors as well. So in our uh, middle of the pandemic situation where we are right now, all of these kinds of things to preserve um, and protect goodness in our world and the ability for humans to to be here (laughs) at all, as much as you can contribute, please consider that. For my reflection, I I loved the part, Rudo, where you were talking just at the very beginning about being able to adapt and learn. And I am naturally good at that, but can sometimes not think of that necessarily as a super skill. And you were reluctant to do so also. But anyway, it just re-inspired me to be more proud of the things I can do. And that ties into some of the stuff Mandy was talking about too in like, no, actually I, I do do this. So y'all gave me a nice boost to that today. Um, awesome. So maybe I'll go last yeah. on inspirations. So for me, for the past like three or four years, it's been just tremendously inspiring to work with volunteer, like open source developers. And with Terra Stories, I think the last time I checked, there were like more than 60 people had contributed to the code. And that's just the code. That's not even talking about, you know, designers or people who have just had an idea or a suggestion or things like that that are not documented on something like GitHub. And it's just been like really tremendously inspiring to, to build community around software and the needs that it serves. And in the pandemic, you know, we've, we've kind of like let that lapse a little bit um, because of course everybody has priorities in their lives and other things are going on, but it's really inspiring me again to start building more community again and to sort of start sharing more of the word of Terra stories and like being more involved in that. And then the other thing is, I think to go back to sort of the beginning again about like, everybody can be a coder is to like motivate myself to like do more of this and to like just kind of get to that point where you realize like, Oh gosh, now I'm suddenly like you were saying, Mandy, in terms of the podcast, suddenly you're in charge of this now (laughs) when it started with just little, you know, steps here and there uh, to sort of continue that journey for myself and to like become more of, yeah, a better developer and to own that title instead of being like no I'm not I'm not a developer I just happen to know how to do a few things with code right <laughs> I'm so proud of you you said to be a better developer yes I love that. first time I've ever said it <laughs> you heard it here folks yes i love it i think we could all do that more as whole <laughs> is be like you know what i am going to do this or i can do this or i you know get rid of that imposter syndrome well Mm-hmm. Rudo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciated having you here. And 
I hope to see you at Ruby for Good in September. And to everyone else, I urge you to check out the show notes, get involved. We do provide transcripts. We also have a Greater Than Code Slack community, which Ruto will also be getting an invite to for being a guest. You can come talk to us and hang out there. You can go to our Patreon page to get into that. It's patreon.com slash greater than code. Or if you can't afford to donate or give, just DM me on Twitter and I'll let you in as long as you are also greater than code. And with that, we will see you all next week.